Support for this podcast is brought to you by Disney's Wish, now nominated for a Critics' Choice Award for Best Animated Feature and Best Original Song. Gizmodo calls Disney's Wish an animation triumph that illuminates a century of magical animated history and is a bold testament to everyone who makes movie magic through an inspiring fairy tale that speaks to artistry being the true legacy. Disney's Wish, awards eligible in all categories for your consideration. Hi, and welcome to the 250th episode of the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Chris O'Fall, executive editor of craft and special projects at IndieWire. And I remember seven years ago when my old boss, Eric Cohn, said, hey, you should start a podcast. And I do remember thinking that was a really bad idea on a number of fronts, but Eric can be a persistent guy. And so the pitch that we ended up coming up with was this should be a platform for the type of craft and process conversation with filmmakers that Martin Scorsese would love to have. So this summer, when it came time to start talking about who would be our 250th guest, there really was one name at the top of the list. And so quickly, before I kick it over to Jim Hemphill's just really sublime interview uh, with Mr. Scorsese, who, yes, is our 250th guest, and I'm thrilled about that, I want to acknowledge a few people who've helped us get to 250, um, starting with my co-host, Jim Hempel and Sarah Shackett, who, if you listen to the podcast, you know they've made this platform their own and carried it on their backs for this last year. Jim, Sarah, and I would like to just acknowledge the behind-the-scenes contributions. Jason Gonzalez, Trevor Wallace, Zach Valente, Par Parik, Aswan. These are people who have turned this into a multimedia platform, a revenue-generating platform, and an award-winning platform. All three of those things kind of blow my mind, uh, but so do those five people. I want to thank Nathan Halpern for his music. I want to thank the filmmakers and their teams. You know, people like Barry Jenkins and Greta Gerwig and Jordan Peele, um, they've gotten bigger with each film, but they stop by every time. Those relationships with the filmmakers and their teams have really been at the backbone of this podcast, as have the filmmakers aspiring and established who listen. We just love getting your notes. We make this podcast for the filmmakers, and it's, it's wonderful to know that you're out there listening. So look, uh, there is a new film, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. It was directed by Martin Scorsese, and I know we'd like to give some context up front about these new movies, but I think I think you're probably okay, my Toolkit listeners. I think you're ready for us to jump right in. I've listened to the interview twice, and it was just an absolute joy to listen to Jim and Mr. Scorsese absolutely nerd out here on Toolkit. So enjoy, and thank you for listening. I want to start by asking you about the way you open Killers of the Flower Moon, because it seems to me like a movie this complex, one of the big challenges would be just figuring out where to begin. And I love the way you start with the pipe ceremony and the oil gushing out of the ground and the newsreel footage. How did you land on that as the way to open the movie? And was it something that was there from the beginning or was it tough to get to? No, that developed. That developed. Um, Eric and I originally had the idea that we, I, I came, we had the idea we should do the Oklahoma, Oklahoma land rush. And uh, he had written a beautiful five, I think, seven-page description of this thing. I'm not kidding. Beautiful vignettes. I'm just going to do it all in one take. We, we, we had all had worked it out that it would take another month to shoot, but it would be a separate unit, in effect. We'd be keep going back and forth and, and finally do the last sequence, uh, do the last shot of it after four weeks of work. But... We then realized as we changed the, the, the point of view of the picture from uh, the um, Bureau investigation coming in from the outside in, and as we changed the, the point of view of the film from the inside out, which is 
going with Ernest and Molly rather than the Bureau investigation, um, that we were there, you know, on the ground with everybody right in the middle of all this, uh, we realized that, in effect, the um, Oklahoma land rushes, which took place in the 1870s or so, uh, which had been beautifully uh, covered in that film Cimarron, the, the first uh, Western to win an Oscar. And, and then later on, even Anthony Mann did, did a color version of it. Uh, extraordinary uh, productions. They happened too early for our story. The Osage weren't even there. I believe. I may be wrong on that, but I don't. They weren't. Uh, they weren't a major factor in that. My thought was that you know, it really just expressed uh, the ethos of the time, uh, which is you want the land, there it is. Go run, take it. Well, there are people. It doesn't mind. Don't, don't mind them. Just get rid of them. If they get in the way, move them. Kill them. Get out. Just go. Take the land. And that's what it's really all about. So, with that in mind, I read this book called A Pipe for February by um, uh, Redcorn, uh, and Hansi Redcorn. Um, I, I'm sorry, I have the first name wrong, but in any event, um, uh, it's a beautiful book. In fact, we're hoping to, we're, we're working on it right now uh, uh, to be, become a series, because uh, it tells a whole other story. But there is a section of it in which the uh, elder, uh, the elders bury uh, this pipe, because the pipe is not really a pipe, it's a pipe person. The drum is a person. It is not a drum as we know it. It's a very, very different way of thinking. The pipe is buried because the world has changed so much with the white European uh, coming in and taking everything and taking over that the pipe's powers, which it um, enriched, with which it enriched the Osage nation, the pipe's powers are too strong to be left in the hands of young people who no longer know how to use it because the new pe the young people are being taken over by the white world in that effect. And uh, their spirituality is being combined, and it was combined and still is in many cases, with Christianity. All of this. Uh, so the best thing to do would be to take these elements, which are persons in within, in within themselves, and they have so much power, bury them. Just bury them. The world doesn't know how to deal with it. And the last ones to know how to deal with it is the older generation, and we died off. And so I thought, well, that would be the way to start. And it comes from that book. And as I say, we're trying to work out a series now for it. Well, I love that also, you know, just that image in slow motion of everyone dancing with the oil gushing out of the ground. And obviously, you know, part of that is the Robbie Robertson music is yeah. just fantastic. And uh, what kind of conversations did you have with him about- Oh, I told him jubilant, go, go get it. Here it comes. And I, he put in also this business of a, almost a, the sounds of the wolves screeching, crying. And he did that through those guitars, um, uh, the wolf cries. And, uh, you know, I wanted something really, really jubilant and powerful, uh, which takes us into the, um, takes us right into the film. It goes through the um, newsreel footage uh, of the picture of the um, Osage culture at that time. Because I think a lot of people didn't realize, I mean, you know, they were playing golf. They sent their kids to uh, major schools, um, universities. Um, they had airplanes. They had, I mean, this is a major, this is a major cultural change. Um, that no one today really remembered, I would think, you know, or would even, no one would associate with a Native American nation this way of life. There's no doubt about it. But it was happening, and it did happen. 
They're closing made in England and France. You know, so this, um, and there was the, not only was there a culture clash, of course, with the European American and our culture and our religion, et cetera, but also the culture clash of within the European society of America um, of the 1920s, where you had the young women becoming flappers and the freedom there, which was reflected in Hollywood films, et cetera, you know. And I think um, Lily pointed out last night that, you know, you have to, it, this is something that should be, people should be reminded of. And I don't know how many still exist. Some do, but the Native American was, was treated uh, very differently in silent films um, all the way up to about 1920. Uh, a lot of the Native American actors in those films were Native American. Um, there were stories that were more, literally, stories about them, told by them. Uh, but that went by the wayside after World War I, where, you know, uh, the hero came out of it and became the cowboys and the Indians, so to speak. And it simplified things and became another genre. It became a Western genre, which had other elements and I think other, I should say, um, other positive elements, but not that. Yeah, I mean, how did you see this movie in relationship to the Western? I mean, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, when I was young, you know, I learned who Bud Bedecker and Sam Peckinpah were from reading about reading your interviews and things. And so ever since that, I've been waiting. I've been like, when's he going to make a Western? When's oh, he going to well, make a Western? You can't make a Western after those guys made those films. <laughs> Seriously. Well, you can't you can't go near John Ford or Howard Hawks or Bud Bedecker or Andre de Toth or Del, Delmer Daves. His Westerns are amazing. 310 to Yuma and, uh, well, particularly in the, in this case, Broken Arrow, for example. You know, he was he was one of the, the first to to do at that period in the 19, early 50s films that were pro native, uh, uh, Broken Arrow, uh, Drumbeat, uh, The Last Wagon. Uh, Anthony Mann did The Devil's Doorway. The problem, of course, is that uh, but there was an attempt at that time in Hollywood from 1950 to 55, uh, an attempt at showing the other side. But the problem is the actors were not uh, Native American. They were whether it was Jeff Chandler or, or uh, uh, Robert Taylor or uh, Charles Bronson, and, uh, et cetera. You know, um, good actors, but of course, um, for box office, they wanted names. And so they became, uh, became an accepted, um, codified imagery from the Hollywood system. Well, so if you don't see this as a Western in that tradition, I mean, how would you categorize this movie? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how can I make a Western? I come from the Lower East Side. I don't know any of this. The guys who made Westerns out here, look at this place. This is the West. There were no buildings like we're in now. When they came out here, they had horses. They were riding horses. And the old cliche of the director with jodhpurs, right? Well, that's what they did. You got around on a horse. You got around. You had to wear boots. You had to have a riding crop. You had to do this. You had to do that. You had to live. You, you look at look at the, um, the way films were made here at that time without certain special effects, you know, uh, you have Griffith throwing uh, Lillian Gish on actual ice flows for way down east. That's real. You have DeMille out there. You have um, Eric von Stroheim shooting in Death Valley and, and two people dying from the heat. Um, so, you know, you're, you're, really, uh, you're really in a different world entirely. It comes from the 19th century, and it has very, very, very close ties with the actual West, including the actual cowboys, so to speak, and the Native Americans. Thomas Ince put all Native Americans in his films. From what I, that's a general statement, I'm sure. There are those experts who say who he didn't. But believe me, there are a number that I could point to that, he, that they are in there. One film called Last of the Line, a two-reeler, which is interesting. But um, granted in that, 
The chief's son is played by Sesia Hayakawa, the guy who later played in Bridge on the River Kwai. But he was a very famous um, um, Japanese uh, Asian star at the time. Uh, he made a film with uh, DeMille called The Cheat, which was a big hit. And he was he was phenomenal success, but they put him in as the chief's son. But the chief had never acted before. He was 80 years old. He was extraordinary in the film. And all the other actors are native. Um, and so, in, in, in effect, um, that cl closed everything off. So for me, the Western, that was such an escape for me as a young boy, uh, yeah, my, my uh, life was kind of dictated by the uh, asthma illness and other, uh, other illnesses and things. And so I was always taken to movie theaters. And the sense of open spaces I saw, I, my, my, my connection to the open space was the American Western. Color, black and white, doesn't matter. You know, then when widescreen hit, it was even more, you know. So for me, this is something that um, I, I cannot even attempt to uh, make a version thereof. And also the world changed. And it was all ended by Peckinpah in 1968 with the Wild Bunch. You know, I remember Waylon Green having dinner with him as a co-writer in the Peckinpah said to him, let's make these bastards real sons of bitches. And he said, yeah, let's do it. And they were. Yet they had a loyalty to each other, and they had a code. As one point, one, one yells at William Holden, says, depends, I think it was Ernest Brodnan says it in the film, depends who you give your word to. It depends who you give your word to. Uh, very interesting. But that ended it, guys. That, that movie finished it. Well, it's funny. I mean, in this movie, the, some of the places where it does feel like, you know, I can really, you know, see a line from your other films is like the guys hanging out in the pool hall. I mean, they feel like something out of Mean Streets or oh, yeah, it's the same or thing. something like it's that. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And, and one of the things that, yes, I could pull from the other Westerns, because one of the key things from other Westerns is that we were, we saw so many, and very often the same actors were there. Uh, the the um, Ken Curtis in, in, uh, in uh, John Ford's films, the guy who plays, uh, oh... Oh, old Moe's. Oh, uh, I know you. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I can't remember his name, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, all these minor characters are played by the same people all the time in all these films, even in the Hawks films. And so it became like a family. And I could say, well, you know, if I get people who could at least, when they're standing together, look like they belong in the same world. And if one moves to the left, the other one moves to the right, and it looks okay, that's what we're going to go for. They happen to be in a pool room. Okay, <laughs> I know what happens in a pool room, <laughs> all right, you know. So so it really, um, you know, like the scene in The Searchers where Ward Bond arrives at the house and says, hey, get some of that coffee, and everybody, have you been baptized? He tells me, and we're all laughing and running around. Um, that became the scene my mother and Goodfellas. What I mean by that is that it isn't exact that scene, it isn't, but the sense of the family, the sense of the camaraderie, the sense of the overlapping dialogue, of all that wonderful action going on in the house at that time, cooking the breakfast, the kids getting up, and everybody teasing each other. All of that was so warm and so beautiful. And so I said, well, we should have, we should, you know, it, it, it just is natural for us to do the same. Well, it's funny. I also was thinking in the Ernest and Molly relationship, there was a lot in that that reminded me of another movie I know you love, The Heiress. So I was wondering yes, if that exactly. was on your yeah. mind at all. Very much so, very much so. I think Leo brought it up, but I said The Heiress, Morris and Catherine. Well, he wanted her money. The father was, was right, although the father was terribly brutal. Where He says, who would go for you? Look at you. You're plain. You're nothing. And he's mad at her because her mother died giving birth to her. 
and she can't compare to the mother. It's devastating. I mean, the actors are incredible. That based on the play gets. I think wrote the play, and then, of course, it's a Henry James novel, but Myler directing. So, and you have Aaron Copeland's music, and uh, you're looking at this extraordinarily attractive man, this uh, Montgomery Clift, who's charming, etc. Uh, the enabler, played by Miriam Hopkins, and she's enabling all of this because she's got these romantic fantasies in her head. But, you know, he comes back finally after the father dies. There was discussion. A few a few of my friends who were talking about the film and working on the script and said, they said they think that he really loved her. I said, no. She knows at the end that he didn't. I mean, in reality, you could say, look, let's make an arrangement. He's gone. We have the money now. He'll have a nice life. Let's get, let's be together. She will not have it. And she's right. I'll never forget. I saw that I was maybe 10 years old with him pounding on the door at the end. You know, I believe he was still after the money. Uh, there are a couple of friends of mine who disagree. <laughs> Hence this movie in which Ernest, how much does he know and when does he know it? How Heavily deluded is he? He is delusional about what's going on. He won't. Ex but I know. I know that subconsciously he does know, and he fights himself. He fights against it. Not King Hale. Not my uncle. Not me. Not you know. But it just crumbles. How delicate is a character like that in the editing process? You know, someone. <laughs> you know. Yeah, pretty delicate. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the editing process starts for me in the writing, and I, I, I share credit on this picture, and there's a, a lot of people, you know, the actors help. I mean, I'm sorry, it just worked that way. That's how I how I did it. Eric and I slaved away, and then um, COVID hit, and we changed a lot of stuff, but the point is that uh, it starts in the, in, the, in the writing, and for me, with an actor like Leo DiCaprio and um, Lily... And even uh, Bob De Niro, because his character is something that, well, we felt a little more comfortable with. We know that we've been, we know that world somewhat. This man who wants power a certain way, but he overdoes it. He oversteps his bounds. Pride before the fall, pride precedes, you know, uh, precedes the fall, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in any event, it's much deeper than that, but still, that, that we felt comfortable there. But with Ernest, um, this is something that went on day by day shot by shot, every weekend, meetings, discussions, discussions. We, we were walking tightropes everywhere. I mean, it was a minefield. And so we met with trusting the other actors and, my, and what I was doing with the script, we, we, we would feel, oh, overline, over the line, no, push back here. No, no, too much there. Well, we could try that, but I think it's going to be too much. Let's try this. And, and, and you know, and that's how it went to the last weekend of shooting, guys. That's how it went into the last scene between Bill and Ernest in the jails, where he comes to tell him, I'm going to testify. Originally, it was written that they were going to fight in the jail. They don't need to fight anymore. It's beyond fighting. It's coming and, and you know, they're dead. It's dead. But what happened? Person died. That's it. There's nothing you could say about it anymore. He comes and says, I'm going to testify. I mean, Bob's character could jump and shout and scream and be humiliated. No, he will not do that. He tells him, I love you, son. <laughs> love is the great manipulation. For a scene like that on the day, 
what kind of, uh, you know, you get in there with De Niro and DiCaprio. I mean, do you come in with a pretty strong plan of what you want your shots to be? And are you then responding well, to Well, we're them? pretty locked in in the jail there. Yeah. But we had designed that. Jack Fisk and I, you know, we talked about it. So I want bars everywhere. And I wanted them, even though in reality, they weren't in the same jail. But, you know, uh, earlier, you see when the, when the kid dies and they're in the same jail where uh, Leo's uh, character and is just screaming on the floor and Uncle Bill gets up and starts praying. She's with the Lord now, you know, and he means it, you know. Their suffering is there too. And so um, that dictated the angles. And uh, the hardest part with those bars is losing the eyes of the actor, moving in a certain way. And uh, not just, you see, his cell, De Niro's cell, is not on its own. It's like there's, there's a hall that, he, that, that uh, Leo has to walk down which is uh, cells on either side. So it's like direct. It's like the last mile, you know? And so, and at the end of the mile, there's Uncle Bill. You know, but he's got those bars in front of him. And so we, uh, I did do two cameras on that. There's no doubt. Do you, uh, so you're talking about the evolution of the Ernest character throughout. Then you've also, as I understand it, I I talked to your, um, your archivist and she was saying that throughout... She was constantly feeding you information. Well, Marianne about, Bauer, yeah, yeah Marianne. I mean, she she kept me straight in the whole picture. I mean, without her, it, was, it would be ridiculous because there were things I was doubling up and tripling up. She goes, now, Marty, look over here on page 30. It's, oh, <laughs> we had, okay, we're not going to do that. We're going to go here. She said, but if you do this, I have to make sure with Chad Renfro and the uh, the uh, Osage, uh, the Osage experts uh, on each on each thing to tell you what we can do, what we shouldn't, what we, we can't do, or what we should do, and what we shouldn't do. And so all this information was a constant daily work with her, uh, keeping everything in place as much as possible, uh, particularly repetitions that were unnecessary. Yeah, you could say, well, the repetitions in the film, yeah, but I think they're good. I think I like them. <laughs> but we had much more than that. And I said, okay, that's got to go. That's got to go. Well, how did this guy die? How did, how did um, Henry Grandma die? Well, they said that they, I don't give much away, but in, in the book, I believe they said they tampered with his brakes. Then we were told, no, they shot him. So <laughs> I said, all right, he shot and they tampered with his brakes. <laughs> so you see Sturgill Simpson is like, he shot and the, the car crashes. I mean, so, I mean, those kinds of things. Um, the main thing was that Henry Grammer was taken out by King Hale. That's the key. And he did it. They did it while he was driving his car. One way or the other, you know. So those are the things I had to make the choices on. Um, but along with uh, Marianne helping me um, with uh, the Osage and Margie Burkhart, who's Ernest's great granddaughter, and all these people who were who were related to the characters in the movie, you know, and they remember uh, John Williams, who, who sadly he died, but he was one of the key. Um, uh, uh, consultants and, and experts because he was very close friends with Cowboy. Cowboy was the son of Ernest. Cowboy died, but he was very close with him. And John had a way of going about things. He was terrific. Sometimes some people would be rather strict. And he said, ah, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. You can move it here. You can move it there. You can use that blanket this way or that. So there, you know, there were things, uh, for example, the wedding scene that were, um, there were additions to the wedding scene that would have happened at a different time slightly, but we wanted to give wanted the, the culture to be shown in, at its best, um, meaning at its best, that uh, in its most thorough, I'll put it that way. 
and we we got we were sanctioned by them to say, okay, go ahead and do that. You know, things like the little girl walking over the coffin, uh, the baby naming, the ancestors coming to take to take uh, Lizzie home. All this is stuff that I wish we had more. The owl, all of that. You know, Eric and I had much more of that in the script, and but everything as once the, the picture started to coalesce around Molly and Ernest, that was the key, and so we, everything else sort of fell fell into place. But it was a process that, that I got to tell you, you know, just to the very last day of shooting went on. Is that typically the way you work now or do you, you know, or is this a, is this a particularly fluid uh, No, this was particularly fluid. But on the other hand, um, the foundation work was done with Eric and me, I, I, you know, however else I wrangled it, I wrangled it with my friends or whatever. Uh, but meaning the actors and stuff and but the thing is, uh, the foundation work was very strongly laid by by uh, the original scripts. Otherwise, I could not have done anything like this. And we had a lot to do with the Osage Nation, the people themselves. Um, we, we a lot. They contributed so much. Um, in some cases, not even realizing how much they contributed to the script. They'd walk by and say something. I said, "That's interesting. I put it in." You know, like the uh, uh, the thunderstorm where she tells him to be quiet. That was just said in passing to me by somebody um, about how their grandmother raised them and how they respect how they respect nature. Wakanta gave us the blessing of the storm, and so I said, "Well, there you go. That should be the end of the scene, the dinner." <laughs> so we had something else written, and I said, no, "No, no, okay, let's let's do this." The actors thought it was great, so we did it. But it, um, I Irishmen had some of that, but not much. That, again, there that um, Wolf of Wall Street, we had a lot. It grew organically as we went. Um, that was manic, though. I mean, you know, that was uh, when a person by uh, uh, there's an energy that takes over in a case like that that you just follow it if you can, and hang on. And um, if it becomes outrageous, uh, go further. You know, that was the world they're in. You know, well, the performances in all these recent movies of yours that you're talking about, but especially Killers, are just fantastic. And it's interesting, I was just reading Marshall Fine's book on Cassavetes, and you're quoted a lot oh, in it. Nice. And uh, you know, I was and, and I was thinking, watching Kills of the Flower Moon, I mean, it really had a sort of Cassavetes quality just in terms of the penetrating insights that you're getting watching these people and the delicacy of the gestures and how, how much is not said, but you get through these performances. And I'm just curious, what did you learn from Cassavetes? Both, I know you knew him, but from both from watching his movies and from knowing him, what do you still, are you still influenced by him? Does oh, certainly, it... yeah. You know, he was the key influence. I mean, Kazan started, started the whole thing by me seeing On the Waterfront when I was 14. That's different. Uh, Kazan led to Cassavetes. I got to know Cassavetes through my friend Jay Cox. And um, uh, he... He encouraged me. He saw uh, my attempt at a first feature called Who's That Knocking? And he really liked it. I, not, I'm not a fan of it except for one or two scenes, but he really liked it. And um, I, I'm not a fan of it for other reasons. That's not the conversation. Uh, but in any event, it's not successful at all. But it became Mean Streets. And that he pushed for that. Uh, he, uh, the thing about John was that he was, um, and this way other people could tell you too, he was um, warm, open, uh, tolerant and encouraging, like a great teacher, a master. And it wasn't, uh, uh, it was uh, a more Mediterranean, more open, more, more. You could see it in his films. And I come from that. I'm Sicilian. He's Greek. 
Uh, so, and Kazan was some Greek, I would think, I, I, I think. But in any event, I, I felt comfortable there. And my teacher at NYU, my professor was Armenian, Professor Minujian. So I felt, felt comfortable in that world. Um, uh, Greeks, Sicilians, uh, Jews, uh, and Armenians, all like very open. And Cassavetes embodied all of that. And he went for the truth of, I say the truth, is the old story, what is truth? But in certain situations, you could get to the heart of something between two people, and he wouldn't let it go. He wouldn't let it go. Um, uh, the poetry that he achieved with Jenna Rowlands and Ben Gazzara and Peter Falk and all of them, his mother was in the films, is something that is a body of work. It's like a great painter's body of work or a great novelist's body of work, all those films. you know. Um, he was exploring all the time what people really feel about each other and what love is. I, I don't, I'm in a different area there, but his, his thing was about, about loving and the human condition, the human heart. Um, as I say, like a great novelist. Now you talked about how you and Eric Roth were, you know, reworking the script during COVID. And it sounds like that was an advantage that you had. Yes, it was. At that time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it also seems to me like it would be a big disadvantage trying to prep and shoot an epic like this during it was, COVID. It was, it was an absurdity. It was absurd. Once we started playing around with the, not playing around, but once we started inverting the script from the focus not being on the Bureau investigation to the focus being on Molly and Ernest, we had just started that and the studio uh, had loved the old script where the, um, uh, the, 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 the focus was on uh, the Bureau coming in, Tom White, et cetera, and trying to find their way through. Um, and as I've said this many times, David Grant says it too, it's the old who done it, you know. And I kept reading this thing, I kept saying, it, it, it's not a matter of who, who did, it's a matter of who didn't do it. I wanted to show the complicity, you see. And so um, the, uh, our first attempts at trying to balance it with the love story uh, and all the other elements that were involved, um, went back to the studio. We had a really nice meeting, kind of sad, because they said, we don't want to do this version. We prefer the other version. And so we lost the backing. And um, there was a flurry of activity for about four days somehow. And next thing I know, I think it was Rick Yorn came back with Apple. And then Paramount came back in for distribution. But I pointed out to, to, the, to the guys at Paramount, great guys, friends of mine actually, I said, no, you see, this is where it's just, it is now. I'm going to do this with it, and then I'm going to do that. And then, well, we haven't gotten there yet because COVID interrupted. But, you know, it's a big picture. And unless they get a better sense of it on the page, it doesn't make sense for them to put that kind of money. Because uh, who knows what could happen, you know? To, 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 is the old story like, trust me, when a person says that, be careful. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I'll trust you. This has got to change. I know we're changing it. We're doing it. We're doing it. Yeah, but I want to change now. Well, I can't change it right now. We're in the middle of it. So I almost didn't make the picture. And then a few days later, Apple came in and they were great. And Paramount came back in. And uh, the people who really had it was um, uh, Dan Freak and, and um, uh, um, Bradley, uh, Bradley Thomas. And uh, they, they, they owned the property. Uh, they also owned um, Lost City of Z that James Gray made, you know. So they stayed with us all the way through, of course. Yeah, but so once you're shooting and you're doing this during COVID, I mean, how does that affect things? Like, I would think even just location scouting would be more difficult. Uh, yes, it was, it was extraordinarily difficult, yeah. Um, 
the one thing about it was that there was, this was a pro and a con, the locations were at a distance. So whenever you go to check a location, you're 40 minutes in a van or you're 25 minutes here, 25 minutes there, except for the town of Pahuska, which we then reworked to look like or be like the town of Fairfax, which is only 40 minutes away by car, which is more the, the European-American town, and Pahuska is the Osage one. And um, this is an area, by the way, I, I stayed in Bartlesville, and that's where Terry Malick grew up. So he knows Pahuska very well. It shows up in a few of his films. Um, but in any event, uh, the, uh, um, the, the the location scouting um, during COVID with our masks, um, I believe, I think I had this right, that the Osage Nation um, I gave the vaccinations to the crew from them, not you know, not from other, not from other sources. They did it. Um, I don't believe there were any cases of COVID on the picture, and there were a few towards the end. I think I recall now. Uh, one night we thought Leo had it, and that was difficult. And he also he also became very. He said, "People are not people are people are walking away from me." <laughs> he said, "I feel like somebody." I said, "But luckily it wasn't. It was a, it was a mistake." But um, that plus uh, we did end up shooting in um, time of the year, which I, I, I rather had not shot in, which was the summer, late summer. And it, it, it's uh, extraordinarily hot, uh, 105 to in many days, 110. And you could see the actors uh, in their three-piece suits and you know blankets, et cetera. But in any event, um, that was just a COVID issue. We had to shoot then. That was it, and that was all there is to it. You know, rough shoot, but that's bad. Too bad. You know, so it was uh, it was a. You know, you live there and live with them, and I enjoyed that. It was it was a, an extraordinary experience in my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you enjoy making movies as much as you ever did? Because to me, the inspiring thing about you is I think you just keep getting better, better and better. I mean, I think your last four pictures are four best movies you've ever made, and. Uh, it just seems to me like I'm so inspired by what seems to be this passion that you still have for filmmaking. I think I do. I really do. I, I just even shot a commercial last week. I mean, and I, whatever you may think of a commercial, it's not easy. It's 30 seconds. You got to tell the story. It's harder than doing a three-hour film. So, you know, um, as, as difficult as it was, you're still making pictures. You're still making pictures. You're looking at the picture, and the person comes in there, and that's going to be here. And, oh, should we move the camera this way? It's kind of... It, it, those moments still have, thank God... An excitement for me. Um, and over the past four pictures, I'd say, which is about 10 years, they're mainly independent films. And I was given more freedom uh, to a certain extent. And so I also felt that um, if I'm going to be given this freedom and I have the the um, grace to have on my side some wonderful actors like Di uh, DiCaprio and others, um, like... Do something interest. Do something that's not conventional. Try to find other ways. I do the documentary, what they call documentary music films, to open my mind is to try to how to tell us uh, how to deal with a narrative that's different. Because with the music films, they are like music. There is no structure, traditional structure. I always I don't like when people say there's a first act, a second act, and a third act. Those that's for theater, which is good for theater, but not in film. You know, 
not, not every film has to be. I mean, there are many films that have those acts fine and they work beautifully, but not every film has to have that. Um, and so can it be like listening to a piece of, of um, classical music or even a beautiful piece of uh, rock music that goes on for a while, um, like in the case of Robbie's music, for example. And so for me, what's the point of doing it if you can't do something special? And that means um, the choice of material. You know, very often, I mean, uh, Leo brought Wolf of Wall Street to me. I didn't want to do it for a long period of time. You know, I did silence. I wanted to do that for a long period of time, and that pushed other boundaries that, uh, you know, I don't even know. I, I was so close to it, I can't tell you what I think anymore about the making of that. Um, I loved it. I was there, and it was a life-changing experience. And then what's the point of going on? I'm 81. I'll be 81 in a few days. So I don't want to go to work. You know, like meaning do something for somebody else. I always used to, I, when I tried that in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, I got fired. It always came out like wrong. Um, and my ego was, you know, enormous in that way. And so like now it's like fresh every time and scary, you know, scary. And not to be, not, not to be different just to be different. What can I find that makes me interested every day to go there? And that's a blessing if it, if it, it can happen, you know. Um, but again, you need good collaborators. You really do. All right. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Thanks so much for doing this. It was terrific. Thank you. Thank you.